Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Chris Best of Substack. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And we previously uh, had Nadia, so this is the second uh, episode involving, uh, involving someone from Substack. Great. Chris, why don't you give us a bit of an introduction? What is Substack, and when is the moment that you knew that this was what you wanted to spend the next decade or so of your life on? Um, so Substack is a place for independent writing. Um, in practice, that means you can sort of, as a writer, you can go independent. You can create a blog, a newsletter, your own independent thing, and people can subscribe to you directly both in the sense of saying they want to get your stuff directly in, in their email inbox unmediated by an algorithm, and also in the sense of paying you directly. So you can subscribe to the writers that you love and trust and directly support what they, what they do. We started this a couple of years ago now. I was taking some time off after my last company, and one of the things I sort of had in my bucket list was to do some writing, because I've always been a huge reader. I've always believed that great writing has a lot of value. Like the stuff you read shapes how you think, shapes who you are. And so great writing is this really sort of high leverage thing. And I was like, I could, I could do writing. Like how hard could it be? Um, typical sort of engineer's arrogance, I suppose. Um, and I started writing what I thought was an essay, kind of just talking about the state of the media in, you know, I guess 2017 at that time. And I started kind of complaining. I was like, look, the internet sort of promised this great cultural revolution, right? Like in the early heady days of the internet, we all kind of thought that there was going to be this massive profusion of great stuff and it would sort of join the world together and everybody would be sort of have all these great things. And the results so far, at least I think, have been kind of a mixed bag. Um, You've had some things that are great. It's wonderful that we can talk on Zoom right now and we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we can still record a podcast. Um, But it's not being sort of an unalloyed good. And in particular, I think sort of the the fact that the internet came along and killed the business model for legacy media uh, without yet giving it a satisfactory replacement is kind of the cause of that. So, you know, Craigslist came and killed the classifieds and Facebook and Google came and took over advertising. And we sort of live in this weird in-between period where distribution for writing is global and instant and free in this sort of utopian thing, but the business model is dead. And so everybody that's a writer is writing to please sort of the social media algorithms and the advertisers at sort of these weird online publications and the incentive structure that creates and the emergent behaviors you see from that suck. (laughs) It's kind of bad, right? You get all this clickbait stuff, you get all this false outrage, partisanship, in ways that are kind of both bad for society and also bad for you, an individual reader. I I don't know if you feel this, but I have this love-hate relationship with my Twitter feed 
where I'm both addicted to it and I also kind of wish I didn't read it so much. And I'm writing this essay about all of this stuff. I sent it to my friend Hamish, who's a writer. What do you think? It's like, this is a boring essay. You shouldn't be a writer. And especially, you know, it's easy to complain about all the stuff. It's easy to sit there and say, oh, woe is me. You know, the Twitter is breaking my brain. The world sucks. Anybody can whine about that stuff. If you're so smart, you know, what could you do about it? Like, how could this even begin to be different? And that sort of started the conversation that turned into Substack, the company. And, and so talk about how you see Substack as solving these, these problems, either short-term, medium-term, long-term, and what, what is uh, sort of the world to look like in a, in a world where Substack, you know, achieves your, your mission? You know, what, what is the new golden age of, of, of journalism or, or, or maybe you call it something else uh, look like? I think the most important thing is that we make it so that readers can subscribe directly to the writers that they trust. And the reason that matters so much is because of sort of the incentive structure that it creates. And so, you know, if you're a writer and you're the way that you get paid is to sort of like trick a million people into clicking on the thing you're writing and kind of get them to like be there long enough to see an ad or, you know, you're at a publication where that's their business model. It creates a certain type of dynamic. Whereas if your job as a writer is to provide deep and lasting value to the audience that has grown to trust you over time, the kind of work you can do is fundamentally different. And so the change that Substack wants to make in the world is to make that latter model into a viable thing for as many people as possible. And that means as a writer, I can kind of go independent. I can go and publish directly to my audience and serve them directly. The only people that can fire me are my readers. The only incentive that I have is to, is to sort of create deep and lasting value for them. And then as a reader, I can go and subscribe directly to people who I trust. And I can, you know, I can vote with my dollar to create more of the kind of, of stuff that I actually want to read and see in the world. And I can, in a way, kind of pay to reclaim my attention, right? I can like get the signal to noise ratio higher by saying, you know, I trust this writer. I want to support them. I want to be part of what they're doing. And I want them to have the incentive to serve me sort of faithfully. So I see, I see two sort of major shifts here. One is business model from, you know, subscription, uh, from ad base to sub- subscriber model. And the other is from institution to individual. A lot of the institutions are sort of getting on board with your know, subscriber model, i.e. paywalls, et cetera. I, I imagine that they are, or some of them aren't huge fans of Substack in the sense of they don't want to lose their, their best writers to go independent, but they would say things like, hey, it takes more than one person. It takes a whole infrastructure to create, uh, not, not just technical infrastructure, but the human infrastructure. Uh, how important is it to you, uh, the, the sort of split between individuals? Is it more just that individuals have a choice or is it, you know, in, it's journalism is better when individuals go out on their own as opposed to these, you know, Balaji would say we need more citizen journalism, less yeah. centralized journalism. Are you sort of more neutral on that? What's your take? I'm sort of neutral. Um, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot to be said for as a reader, having a direct connection to a writer that I trust and sort of having this sort of fundamental unit of value that, you know, I trust a person, a human being that sort of has a responsibility to me to tell the truth and to serve me well. And to, like that, that thing, that unit of value is very important. Whether the best way to accomplish that is by, you know, a whole bunch of people kind of going off on their own and being complete lone wolves or by having new types of media organizations that foster that type of connection. 
I'm a little bit agnostic. And we've actually seen people starting you know, group publications on Substack and we've been building features to support this. And the analogy to me is like, you know, you shouldn't have to be a solo founder to do a Substack and be like a citizen journalist or somebody starting their own sort of independent media empire. Um, the big thing that's different is I don't think that most existing legacy media companies are set up to make that transition well. There's kind of an innovator's dilemma problem there. You've built a whole company around one model, one way of doing things. And I doubt that it's the case that most of them will be able to sort of flip and do this new thing. I think you'll see people going out and doing it on their own and having great success as they do today. And I think you'll see new uh, sort of media enterprises being born that start in this new model of, you know, trust and paying directly for things. And I think both of those things are, are fundamentally very good. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we had publications have shifted to subscriber models or, or a bunch of them have. And we've had sort of blogs for a long time, which has sort of shifted from institution to individual, but we, we hadn't put them together in such a, in, in such a, in such a scaled way or made it work. But if anyone had the opportunity to do it, it looked like Medium could have figured it out. Why didn't that, and they're still going and still meaningful, but what's your, what, what are sort of learnings from the Medium experiment? How, how would you sort of uh, chronicle that? You kind of have to ask them why, why they did what they did. And, you know, to Medium's credit, I think they've done a lot to like make the writing experience very good. And it's a beautiful product that I have a lot of sort of respect for. I think it's tough to have to try a bunch of business models kind of in sequence, which I think is sort of my take on what they did. They sort of started out being like, this is going to be great. And we're, we're sort of going to figure it out. Maybe it's ads, maybe we'll figure it out. And they've kind of been like cycling through a few different things. The problem I have with what I think of as the current iteration of Medium is that it feels like an attempt to sort of be in the middle but between the reader and the writer. So it's kind of like you, the reader, will subscribe to me Medium. I'm going to aggregate all this attention and then I'm going to sort of like my algorithm is going to tell you what to read and I'm going to decide how to give the money out to the various writers. And the problem with that is you're basically just doing the job of a legacy publication, right? Like that's what the New York Times also does. And so you're trying to sort of go and be that. And if you're a, a really great writer on Medium that has unique value and has sort of a loyal audience of people that have grown to trust you, you're just going to do a lot better in a model like Substack where that lets you connect directly with that user base. Apologies sometimes uh, tweets uh, things along the lines of, it's not necessarily clear that subscription, uh, this subscriber model will lead to less polarization because after all, you're only serving a smaller um, audience and you need to give them what they want. Um, and if they, you know, want hate of, uh, you know, the president or, or somebody else, you know, that, that's what you're going to give them. I, 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 how do you think about that? It is seen that subscriber model is supposed to solve, you know, m most of the problems. What does it solve? What does it not solve? How do you think about it? Yeah. To me, the, the subscriber model is not a panacea. It's not going to magically fix everything, um, nor should it. You know, I, my contention is not that, you know, subscriptions are going to fix all problems, but just that compared to the state of affairs today, it's going to be much better. And I think the big thing I think about is our job as Substack is not to make a choice for you about what type of stuff you want to read, right? Our job is not to sit here and make you eat your vegetables and say, you know, you should be reading high fiber, information dense, scientific reading and nothing else. Our job is to let 
to put the decision back in your hands and let you make it as your best self. So instead of deciding what you're going to spend your time on by, you know, doing one more scroll through your Twitter feed as you're about to fall asleep and clicking on the thing that, you know, uh, uh, that pokes your lizard brain the hardest, we let you take a step back and look at your life and think, what kind of stuff do I want to be reading? Who do I want to be reading? How is, how am I going to be best served overall by like being thoughtful about my information diet, making like a purchase decision where I'm actually paying to support it. And if sort of by your own lights, you make that decision and you choose something that's more polarized or more whatever, I'm kind of okay with that. I don't want to be the one making that decision for you. I just want you to be able to make the best decision for yourself by your own lights and to like put your money where your mouth is on that. In some ways that will lead to more partisan stuff, right? Like you'll, you'll probably, you know, you might subscribe to Vlad because you agree with his worldview and you think that it's valuable and you want to hear more of it. And that's not by itself a bad thing, especially if that's like a really honest you sort of get that honest take, right? You, somebody comes from a perspective, they represent that perspective, they're not pretending to be anything else, and you find that valuable and you want to get that perspective, that to me is a good thing. The big thing that you, that you won't get or that you'll see less of, I think, is the kind of uh, the effect where you sort of play both sides of polarization. And so the most successful tweets are not the ones that just play to the base most effectively and, and, and respect the, you know, that, that, that hew to one partisan line, the most successful tweets are the ones that uh, maximally piss off everybody else while sort of hewing close to the, the fault line of what is acceptable kind of thing. It's, it's the thing that sort of maximally rallies your side while maximally pissing off everybody else. And you sort of get this like worst possible incentive. And I don't think you see that as much with subscriptions. So I'm curious to ask you a big question of, uh, of was journalism ever great to begin with? And I want to sort of articulate b- both sides of the argument uh, and ask you to sort of not necessarily pick a side, but just weigh in on how you, how you respond to, to the points I bring up and, sure. and where you see Substack's role in it. So on the sort of, you know, journalism was great pre-internet argument is basically something along the lines of, you know, they were these local SaaS businesses or, you know, uh, subscri- subscriber businesses. They weren't individual, but they were local. And journalists, because they had a reliable captive source of revenue, were able yeah. to invest long periods of time into careful research, planning, more, you know, moonshot, in-depth stories, as opposed to the ad model, which forced them to produce hits all the time, uh, which we were just talking about. And that the internet really sh- shifted that for, for them uh, in, in that, you know, it made, yeah, distribution uh, free, um, and we didn't have sort of a native re- revenue model, I guess, uh, uh, to the internet, and they had to use ads um, to get a scale. The counter argument to that is that, you know, today, the, this book, the, the Revolt of the Public, really gets into it. Today, you look at sort of the actions that um, President Trump does. Uh, because of the internet, we can see them with a microscope. But, yeah. you know, how would John F. Kennedy or Richard Nixon have handled the microscope uh, as well. There was no public pre the internet. And so we, the things that we thought were good journalism, you know, if we had the same microscope that we have today, uh, the same, and the same voices to, uh, to voice our displeasure with, with, with them uh, might not have, you know, borne scrutiny in this, in the same way. And Anthology also likes to bring up this, uh, this person, Walter Durante, who I believe was a journalist for New York times who won a, a Pulitzer or, or, or Nobel prize or, or some, huge uh honor uh even though he i believe failed to report or deliberately hid some sort of massive genocide uh i I think related to the soviet union or or something of the sort uh because it didn't fit the fit the narrative uh but that could have never happened today 
So yeah, was it ever, ever really great or was it great just because we didn't have the same microscope uh, we, we've had today? You know, it, it's, it's no doubt that it's been harder for journalists to monetize. Uh, the question also is, has it gotten worse over time or has it stayed the same or has it actually gotten better over time despite our uh, displeasure with it? Yeah, it's, it's a tough and it's a big question. And I think the answer is probably like it's shifting and things are changing and some things are better and some things are worse. I wouldn't take Nixon as an example of someone that, you know, benefited from a impunity from the press. And, you yeah. know, that tells the story of the press failing. I think that was sort of a win for a big, big win for the likes of media. And I, I don't think you're, I would quibble a little bit with your idea of like, you know, it used to be subscriber supported. I think of the most recent sort of print journalism age as an age of local advertising monopolies, where local newspapers kind of had a monopoly on advertising in their city for certain types of things. And that thing basically printed money. And their responsibility was kind of to pitch a broad tent and like not piss anyone off too much and be generally palatable to sort of everyone in the area so they could keep their circulation. And that almost allowed them to do a lot of good journalism not because they sort of were forced to by market forces, but just because the market forces were kind of neutral. They could kind of do whatever. And as long as it was, you know, enough people found it okay, they could, they could keep doing stuff. And you could sort of fund, I think, a lot of great journalism just because people thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, and the internet came along, didn't introduce advertising. It just shifted that whole model. So instead of like, you know, everybody, you're a local business, you go to the local paper, that's where you advertise. All of a sudden now it's Facebook and Facebook can be, sort of massively more efficient and micro-targeted with how they're doing the ads. And it just, it shifts the incentive structure. I don't think the media was ever perfect. And I don't think, you know, I'm not sort of here in the belief that there was some halcyon days where everything was perfect and we're going to go back to them. I think there's a spectrum of good and bad. And in a lot of ways, we've swerved towards the bad. In some ways, we swerve towards the good and that, you know, citizens can hold people more accountable. I think that there's a future that we could build that would be better than anything we've seen in the past. And that if we harness the power of the internet to like create business models and structures and cultures and ways of doing things that support great writing and great culture, we can have something that is sort of unprecedentedly good. And it painted a little bit of that picture. How do you, do you see playing out where there's like a few major centralized institutions like the New York times and then sort of, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of Ben Thompsons for different categories, verticals. Yeah, millions. Why not? Yeah. And, you know, the, when you have a global market for the internet, it tends to favor two kinds of things, right? Either being the very best in the world at something, at some winner-takes-all game. So, you know, I'm the New York Times, I'm the best in the world, and everybody's going to subscribe to me. Or being the best and most specific in the world. So I'm Ben Thompson, I'm the best you know, tech, I'm the best chronicler of this specific type of thing. And so, you know, there may not be everybody in the world that cares about this, but all of the people around the world who do care about it are going to want to read me. And that's going to be a, a heck of a business just because of, you know, I'm, I'm reaching global scale with it. I think both of those things are very valuable. What do you make of the Facebook fake news? Like, I guess this was before Substack or maybe around a similar time. How do you sort of make sense of, of, of of what happened there, how, how we view what happened and how that relates to what you're doing. I see this through the lens of incentive structures. And to me, the problem with any sort of social media feed being a main source of how we get our sort of news and writing is if the economic model for Facebook or for whoever's creating the feed is to sort of maximize engagement because that's how you make your money, 
just because of the way that human beings work, you're going to promote certain types of things. And it's not that they're sitting there being evil and like tending their fingers and trying to do bad stuff. It's just that when you're optimizing for engagement, you get certain failure modes sort of inevitably. And it's not a question of like, oh, well, Facebook should just ban this or ban that. And it's not, you know, ban fake news or tweak the algorithm in this way. I'm deeply skeptical of calls to do that stuff because I think it's like both giving them power that they ought not to have. And to their credit, they sort of generally recognize they ought not to have. And it won't fix the underlying problem. The underlying problem is the way the rules of the game are set up, the wrong things win. And the only solution to that is to play a different game. And, you know, Mark Andreessen in 2014 had a had a blog post, The Future of the News Business. And in it, you know, he mentioned sort of newer, you know, news business, like, you know, BuzzFeed, Vox wasn't around, but they would have fit this, the, you know, the Verge. Would sort of, it didn't turn out maybe as glamorous as he expected in some in some way. There's a lot of good journalism out there, but a lot of these businesses really struggled. Uh, wh- why do you think sort of the, the, the newer media businesses that, tech companies, uh, tech venture capital firms funded and expected big, big returns from didn't, didn't pan out? I'm not totally sure. My, my sort of general feeling is that Facebook and Google won advertising on the internet. And anybody whose business model is advertising on the internet and whose name is not Facebook or Google is just got a tough road to hoe. That's sort of the, the Coles notes for me. I'm curious to get your perspective. I mean, we are sitting here uh, you know, in uh, late April uh, in, the, in the COVID era, but also in this sort of major venture capitalist versus journalism, journalist uh, sort of battle royale, uh, it, it seems. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on, I'll sort of share, share mine. It's interesting, you know, you're inventing uh, or sort of, or maybe repopularizing a new uh, business model for journalists, but uh, Andreessen Horowitz sees itself uh, as sort of, in some ways, as journalists who are monetized through, through venture capital. Uh, and there, there's this construct of, um, you know, Balaji put it, what Bessie said, the West Coast mindset is when you invest in something, you have skin in the game, thus you have more credibility for what you're about to say, because you really believe in it, you put your money in it. Whereas the East Coast mindset is, oh, you, you put your money in something, you're thus conflicted out and, and can't speak uh, with integrity uh, on the topic. That's sort of one major cultural difference I see. Another is that fundamentally, uh, you know, uh, venture capitalists see themselves and technologists see themselves as sort of, you know, heroes for, for innovation and for improving the world. And journalists see themselves as sort of, you know, the watchdogs uh, and defendants of, uh, of defenders of democracy against these tech companies that, while might be great in some ways, have negative externalities that, you know, in their minds o- overpower the, the good and sometimes or, or just need to be held in check. W- what is your sense for? For and there's there's envy I'm sure on both sides. What's your sense for what's what's happening there, uh, and uh, you know what's going to happen as a, as a result? I'm a little bit exhausted with the whole thing, to be totally honest. Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're a com- we're a Silicon Valley company. We're VC backed. I'm a tech entrepreneur. I have a lot of sort of sympathy for that side of the world, but we're also a company that's like been serving writers, and I've had the opportunity through this to meet a lot of really smart people uh, in that industry and kind of throughout and watch them like take the leap to go independent and put their skin in the game and like sort of do an entrepreneurial thing themselves on Substack. And it's been sort of (laughs) pretty cool and inspiring. I think you can 
if you sort of look at one bad example of a VC or one bad example of a reporter and use that to paint a whole class of people with a, with a bad brush, you're engaging in the same sort of foolish thing. And yes, you can, you know, you can, you can cherry pick one VC that's acting like an asshole or one reporter that's acting like an asshole and say, Oh, see, they're all like this. And I think that's just, that's foolishness to me. Totally. There is this idea. You were going back to the subscriber model for a second that there's journalism that they are a headline headline that you read and that you might even share if it's, you know, something that affirms your tribe, but there's this, there's something different about paying for something and that you think a bit more about, is this really going to add value to my life? Yeah. People will hate read things, but they won't hate pay for things. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So why don't you say more about some of the writers that are, that are popular on Substack, uh, maybe what's surprised you, you know, how, how much of it is like business reading versus personal reading. Why don't you talk a bit yeah. more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of our first, our, our, in fact, our very first writer was uh, Bill Bishop, this guy that writes Cynicism. It's a newsletter about China, just like what the heck is going on in China for an international business and government audience. And one of the big questions we had early on was, okay, this model will work for businessy things, right? Like Stratechery is arguably businessy. People are paying for it with their corporate card. Cynicism is working great, but it's businessy. You know, will this work for consumer stuff, for things that people just want to read? And to my great delight, the answer has been resoundingly yes. There's been kind of this wonderful profusion of weirdness on the platform that's gone way beyond anything that I expect. There's all kinds of like, you know, humor that's targeting librarians and off the wall. Like I, I can't even <laughs> give credible examples because there's, there's such just like interesting little niches that you never would have thought existed before, but are somehow there and like these wonderful little like pockets of, of value. And people ask like, what kind of writers work on Substack? And there is an answer. The answer is sort of like, you know, outsider nerds that are go deep into something that have a cool perspective, but in terms of topic area and like consumer versus business versus religion versus everything, it's like, it runs the gamut. It's been really kind of like a wealth of bizarreness that I love. Totally. Before this conversation, I was trying to sort of think about what would it look like if you unbundled just journalism in general into sort of its different functions. And I see that sort of the internet is, is done that a bunch of different ways. And I came up with a few, uh, a few, and I'm curious if you, if you'd edit or add any of them. One is uh, entertainment, uh, to numerical facts, you know, box score, almost like a sports game, you know, stock feed, you know, what, what happened, uh, trade information, you know, talk about uh, say drones, 3d printed cars, political power, uh, getting, hold people accountable, uh, you know, get people fired if, if necessary, uh, activism, you know, drive change in society via repetition, uh, monetization, build businesses and, and te- teach history. What are what are other things that come to mind for you, or how we, how does that resonate? I would add meaning making, uh, sort of sense making. We we see a fair amount of great religious stuff on Substack, wow. which perhaps in retrospect shouldn't be surprising, but wasn't something that I sort of immediately would have expected. Community is really interesting. You know, one of the things that's cool when you're a you know a writer about some niche thing that goes out to you know, all the people in the world that love this one weird thing enough to pay money for it, it turns out those people, you've kind of put a bat signal up and those people are this potential community that would love to talk amongst themselves. Like there's this value, not only in creating the sort of the signal, but also in just bringing all those people together. 
Um, so we've got a bunch of Substacks that are, you know, the, the community discussion is a big part of the value and just sort of like feeling a feeling of belonging and being part of this tribe of things. Yeah. Um, I would definitely add those. How do you think about uh, new sort of technologies and how they might uh, evolve journalism? And one, for example, is, uh, is cryptocurrency uh, and, and blockchain in general as a sort of verifiable uh, so- source of truth. So, you know, a, sort of that and that being a referee instead of a, instead of a human in, in, in some ways for, for some examples um, or the idea of that enabling like prediction markets, better sort of crowdsource, uh, ideally sort of wisdom, wisdom of the crowds. What's, what's your take on that? This is a little bit outside my core expertise. I think I'm kind of a Bitcoin maximalist. Like I think the, the application for blockchain technology is money, is better money. And the, the real implications, the things that will, if, if it goes on to change the world the way that I suspect that it might, it will be by sort of wresting control of the technology of money from the people who previously controlled it. And so, you know, to the extent that it allows, you know, prediction markets, it will be not because, oh, we found some cool way to like encode the prediction on the blockchain. It'll be just because people used to tell you you couldn't do a prediction market and now they can't stop you. Um, I think there is, there's some cool things. Like it's cool that you can sort of like put some, put a hash of something on the blockchain and verify that you had it at a certain time. And that's sort of a neat thing. My personal hunch is that most people who are trying to, you know, do some complicated bank shot with a blockchain thing, it's like, it, you're, it's, it's too complicated. Is the athletic to Substack what Discord is to Facebook? Just sort of, you know, conquering out of vertical and, and building, you know, specialized product for them? That's interesting. Discord is a fascinating company to me. <laughs> I don't want to let anyone else be the Discord because I love Discord. Yeah. Yeah, the athletic is, is very much in the same space and is very much working off the same sort of currents. Um, I think the big difference there is they are sort of hiring people. Like they're building just a really great new style media organization. And I kind of see Substack as almost being one layer of abstraction away from that. Like the next, the athletic might start on Substack. And, and why is it important? Like, why, why do you think they hire people and, and you don't? Or, or, or if you can't speak, speak for them or don't know why, why is it important that you don't hire people or are an abstraction out? I think the thing that we're creating is making this model a reality, right? Like going independent as a writer and going directly and having people subscribe to you, like didn't used to be a thing. And Substack is about making that into a thing. And that being a thing will be valuable across this really wide spectrum of things, so much so that no one company could be good at doing all of them. And so I think the athletic is great because they focus on sports and like, we're going to get great at sports. We're going to figure out how to do this. And they become very good at that. But if the athletic wanted to branch out into cryptocurrency, it'd be weird and hard and it wouldn't be a great fit. Whereas on Substack, you can have both great sports writers and great cryptocurrency writers and they're using sort of this common set of, of tools and, and modes of doing things that creates, creates a lot of value. We're just, it's different things. Yeah. And how do you think about uh, distribution? My understanding is that you guys are not a destination site and you sort of outsource it to, to Twitter and other platforms. Why did you make that decision? Or how um, do you think? Well, we made that decision. I mean, the, the reason we were like that historically is because when we first started, we, had, we started with one writer there was nothing to distribute. We were just like, you know, this has to work for one writer by themselves or it's, it's not going to work at all. And we're getting to a scale now where we have lots of readers asking us, you know, like, 
I'm subscribed to five things on Substack. Like, where can I see them all in one place? Where can I find the next great thing to subscribe to? And of course, writers ask, you know, the number one thing that writers care about is, can you connect me to more readers that would like the stuff I'm doing? So I actually think that's just a big area of opportunity for us, provided we can do it in a way that holds the relationship between the reader and the writer sacrosanct. Going back to uh, how, how crypto might change things, and it doesn't have to be crypto, just to, I just say that to say that there are two big challenges I see in sort of the truth conversation. One is, is sort of the obvious, you know, did it even happen? You know, did, you know, sort of he said, she said, you know, this person said, that person said, you know, you know, how do you identify what actually happened? And back then we only had, you know, one voice telling us what happened. So we just sort of believed it on on site. Whereas now we have different voices with credible arguments uh, for why this thing is true or that thing is true. And, and maybe they both have a little bit of, of truth to them. So it's hard to sort of just even identify what actually happened. And then two is, you know, does it matter and, and how much, you know, this person said this thing, this person did this thing um, and the facts aren't disputed, but the cultural interpretation is or, or the implication of what we should do, you know, relative to what other people do or how other organizations act uh, is debated. And I, I don't see a, a technology coming in and, and solving those problems necessarily, but those are sort of two of the bigger problems I see in sort of the truth or, or fake news conversation. Maybe one way to think about it is that crypto is a way to, organize people around one set of shared beliefs when there's zero trust, right? Like everybody agrees what's in the ledger when none of the participants trust each other and everybody's sort of mutually suspicious and can hate each other and whatever. And it's like a technology that sort of magically allows for that. But I would argue that the, the actual thing we need for what we read is not a thing that lets you prove something when there's zero trust. The thing we need is like trust, we need to have trusted relationships where people have writers that they follow that they believe are telling them the truth or are doing their best effort to do something. And having those trusted relationships is the fundamental thing that's valuable. And so creating a clever blockchain thing where nobody trusts each other isn't actually a solution for what we need for written culture. And you say what we need is that direct reader to writer relationship and earn trust over time and, and ratings and reputation and it's, it's, um, it's skin in the game in a way, right? It's like my readers are the ones that are paying my salary. They, 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 and only they can fire me. A lot of the value that I build up over time is my reputation is the fact that people place enough trust in me that they're willing to pay for me on an ongoing basis. If I go and burn, burn that trust, I've fundamentally, I'm setting myself on fire. That's a valuable thing. Totally. You know, I, I want to sort of bring in Patreon as an uh, analogy here and then a question my understanding of the patreon business is that they started first as a marketplace more so you know hey we'll help you dis- uh, get discovered we'll help bring traffic to you. when someone looks at you know jordan peterson they'll also look at your your page too or some youtuber or whoever it is and and then they sort of shifted more to a SaaS sort of infrastructure play i'm not sure why exactly maybe they lo- that wasn't working as well or maybe they needed to to focus on providing this this the SaaS play to the extent that you know anything about but Patreon, how do you see what happened there? Or and but how do you see that tension more so in in Substack in terms of the value prop being, hey, we'll handle everything, make it super easy, versus we'll bring you distribution you wouldn't have had otherwise, and that's what secures our cut. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think Patreon is great. They're definitely in the same space, you know, working in the same general area. Two big things that I would say are different between what Patreon's doing and what we're doing is. Exactly as you said, Patreon feels to me like kind of this shared 
SaaS layer of like taking payments across a bunch of different things. So it's like people are consuming stuff on YouTube. You can be a YouTuber or a musician or a writer or a cartoonist or like one of a million things. And this is just sort of the place you go to have people come and support you. And the other thing, and I, I don't know if they're still sort of sticking with this today, but to me, historically, it's felt like Patreon has really been about patronage, right? It's been about like, this thing is free, come and support me out of the goodness of your heart, because it's the right thing to do. And maybe you'll get like a cool kind of bonus. But you're really like, you're sort of donating, you're, you're sort of busking for a thing. I think that model is great, and it should exist. And it's the right thing to fund some things. But there are also lots of things where the right model is just saying, hey, I'm making something valuable and like you should pay for it because it's good. Um, and especially when you get to more of like the business end of things, right? Like you're going to sell a corporate group subscription to your newsletter that covers your industry. This is not a, you know, this isn't a busking model. This is like a, you pay for a thing that is valuable. And in terms of the, you know, being a, you know, one piece and going out to all the platforms, especially for writers, the one of the big things we wanted to do was make it really, really easy, right? Like I look at Ben Thompson and he's sort of like, I think of him as like a double unicorn, right? He's both a great writer and he's a smart entrepreneur and technologist and product person that could kind of like cobble together all of these diverse tools into one thing that kind of works. And we want to make it so that if you're a great writer and people, you have something that people want to hear, that's all you have to be. You can come and like type into this box and if the things you type into the box are good, you're going to get rich because that is the model that's going to, create the most, like let the most people bring the most value to the world. And in order to do that, you kind of have to be this all in one thing. Yeah. A company like Patreon, if you're going to take that plan for you too, what do you think the moat is there in the sense of if some other company, you know, builds the infrastructure, you know, really talented technology team and offers, you know, half as much or something like what, what's the sort of what's preventing someone else from coming in and taking a cut? Um, because versus if you were, you know, bringing them new traffic because this big marketplace you know, someone can't replace that uh, as easily as as the infrastructure, not to downplay the infrastructure. But how do you think about defensibility and uh, over time and and that idea? Yeah, I mean, our our big thing has always been we want to keep people because it remains the best place for them to be. Like one of the things you can bring your email list to Substack and you can also take it away. Like we're not, we're not here to like steal your audience from you. Like you owning your, you owning your connection with your audience is one of the big things. I think those are all the right things, right? Like the more that we can bring, bring traffic to people, um, the easier it is to justify, right? Like we're taking a 10% cut. If we're bringing you even, you know, 10, a little bit over 10% of incremental subscribers, all of a sudden our cut is actually negative compared to doing something else. I think there's value in the network overall. Like the fact that as a reader, I can subscribe to many different things on Substack and I have sort of one common account instead of rails and payment details where I can manage it. Um, and be a part of all these communities. There's there's sort of value in there that we're only starting to unlock now. But ultimately, I want the I want the reason people stay on Substack to be because it's the best place they could possibly be. Yeah, we were earlier we we're talking about sort of you know uh, Nixon era golden age of journalism, and another golden age of journalism is um, the uh, sort of Ben Franklin era. And I wonder if if Substack is sort of a return to that in in some ways. Obviously, major differences, but. You know, no ads, uh, you know, serving readers, pay for value, anyone can publish. You and know, super partisan in some ways, right? Like people yeah. writing these like just scorching editorial things and waging war through their privately known newspapers. Like there's a lot of 
there was a lot of great stuff in, in that era. And my understanding is that Ben Franklin had like 15 different pseudonyms so that he could, you know, one to sell papers, they had to attack each other, but also so that he wouldn't get canceled. <laughs> you could say yeah. using of a different pseudonyms. Pr- pretty fascinating. Let's uh, transition to the concept of citizen journalism. Uh, one sort of pushback I hear is, yeah, it's great for Ben Thompson. Yeah, it's great for Bill Bishop. Yeah. Uh, but how many people are truly making a living or can truly make a living uh, doing this? This, of course, is what Substack is enabling at, at scale. W- where are we right now in terms of that being a, a true reality in a way that can make people feel better <laughs> about sort of declining institu- journalism institution? Um, well, we're seeing lots of people that can make a living out of it. You know, if you, you can sort of like run through the math, right? Like if people are charging 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks a year. You know, if you can get to kind of a thousand, couple thousand subscribers, it turns into real money very quickly. You know, our, the, the thing that we see sort of repeating is if you have an email newsletter or an audience that actually reads your stuff and actually, you know, cares about what you're writing, we typically see, you know, on the order of 10% of your people becoming paid. And so you can kind of like do a little bit of math there. It's like, yeah, if you have a, an, you know, an audience, a, a, a sort of loyal audience of about 10,000 people, you can probably get about a thousand of them to pay. That's probably, you know, order of magnitude. That's like enough to be full time for many, many people. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we've seen that, that story play out enough times now um, that we are uh, sort of very confident that it's a thing that can work for, for lots and lots of people. Uh, also, I mean, we just look at like the retention numbers on these things. Like once somebody starts making serious money, they, they tend to keep publishing. Once somebody likes something enough to pay for it, they tend to keep reading it. Um, this is not a, not a thing that people pay for once and then kind of forget about. So we think that it's going to be a very sticky sort of sustainable model that works great for a lot of people. That said, not everybody can be a professional writer, right? Not everybody that can do a Twitter can necessarily come and you know, start and expect to be able to make a living at it, right? It's a, it's a tough thing to do. Yeah. So one of the things that we focus on is making it so that if you're just getting started and you just want to publish something, we let you do that totally for free for any audience size. Cause we're like, this is just great. We want to just grow the pie of people that are out there publishing good stuff on the internet. And as you start to monetize, you know, just because something is a, is a great side income doesn't mean that it's worthless for a lot of people like that. That can be a, a meaningful thing for many people as well, especially people who are like, I have a day job doing some important thing, but I also have something valuable to say about it. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if, if they experiment with sort of different financial instruments too. You know, we were mentioning how VC monetizes through uh, investing in companies. I wonder if, if journal, you know, especially if you're writing content on how to you know, do startups or something, you know, take ISAs or, or take, ad, ad, Hey, you, if, instead of in lieu of paying a, a hundred bucks a year, if you give me 0.1% equity of your company, we'll call it even if, if you have a targeted base of startup founders. But yeah, I wonder if there'll be experimentations with financial. Yeah. yeah. I'm super fascinated with that. And we ran last year a fellowship program. That's kind of like a little mini YC for writers on Substack. And just recently we actually ran a, a grant program for people, writers that were affected by COVID stuff that was sort of like a, an iteration of that that was just giving money to people that needed it, needed some money to help start their thing. But I'm super bullish on that. I think there's a lot of people, especially when you, once you have an audience of people that care about your thing, if the thing that's preventing you from taking the plunge is just cash flow, um, I think that will be a solvable problem, which is kind of exciting. Love it. Awesome. Well, uh, for people who have been uh, you know, very interested in our conversation and are looking to discover great, uh, great new writers, uh, what are some, uh, who, who are some that you can recommend? Obviously you love all your children equally, but uh, just uh, 
you know, put, putting some out there for, for, for listeners to, to check out and any upcoming plugs for Substack? I would definitely, I would go to substack.com and look at our list of top writers. There's lots of, uh, lots of great people on there. I love all my children equally and I can't, I can't send you to any of them in particular, but there'll be something on there that's deeply fascinating for almost anybody. I'll, I'll name some uh, because you can't, I, I can pick favorites. I'm a huge fan of the browser, uh, of Robert Cottrell who runs this sort of aggregator, uh, sort of intellectual and philosophical uh, topics, uh, and, sure. and biography profiles of, of, of great people. And he runs it in London and I've been reading it for a decade and, and he's been on Substack and, uh, and he's been doing great. Uh, the other, uh, Nate Bechez of, um, divinations. Divinations, divinations, as we as we jokingly call it. Yeah, of divinations, and he just teamed up with uh, with somebody, right? Yeah, Dan Shipper, and they have. I think there's a, there's everything that that sort of they're they're experimenting with a little bundle and trying to lobby us into <laughs> letting them have a feature, which is which is good because it's it's working pretty well. That's awesome. And then yeah, Bill Bishop's work, who we've mentioned, is is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Pomp has a great crypto crypto newsletter. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot. Dispatch is really interesting. They're like a they're like a center right anti Trump amazing or not anti Trump but not non pro Trump sort of like media organization that started exclusively on Substack. That's quite interesting. Exponential view by Zimazar is, is great. Uh, <laughs> view, of course. Yep, heated by Emily Atkin about global climate change and what to do about it. Awesome. Lots of lots of good ones. Cool. And any uh, up- upcoming plugs for, for Substack? What, what, what to expect um, and what we should look out for? Yeah, stay tuned. We're build- keeping building the thing. <laughs> so uh, check out Substack at Substack.com and follow Chris. Uh, Chris, what's your Twitter? CJG Best. Awesome. Chris, uh, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking to you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.